Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Camille Weber. We are here with Ken Friedenreich, um, and it is October 16th, 2015. And my first question for you, Ken, is why wine? The simple answer is why not? It is uh, the beverage of the gods. and. Um, <laughs> For me, being a uh, child of the 60s and having grown up in a household where wine was not ubiquitous but wine was around, I learned to drink wine before the legal age. And I always took an interest in it and when I was in graduate school at SUNY Stony Brook, I worked during the week for Renfield Importers, which was a quarter billion dollar company at the time, and a relatively small player, but um, had the distinction of some very well-known brands like Gordon's Gin and Vodka and Piper Heitzig Champagne and Cointreau and Hagen Haig Scotch, acquired from Joseph P. Kennedy uh, Sr. Um, and other bootleggers. So it was fascinating because I was dealing with upper class New York society in business and most of these guys used to be rum runners, you know, during Prohibition. And so I always had a lot of interest in it. And I remember going to a warehouse in the shadow of what was then the World Trade Center being built in 73 or 4 and going on Hudson Street, uh, which is now very trendy, uh, to a two-story warehouse and looking at cases of Piper Heitzig champagne piled to the ceiling. And I said, when you begin to think about it, this is one warehouse. And yes, it's a major city, but this, look at all this wine. Mm -hmm. And of course, being in the business, I had a chance to try a lot of things and I cultivated my interest from there. All right. Well, what brought you to Oregon then? Well, that's a long story, but I'll make it short. I uh, finished my doctorate in 1975, and um, academic job markets being what they are, they always stink unless you're selling football scholarships. And uh, I had one job offer from the University of Texas at San Antonio and it seems I've been a sucker for startups in business my whole life so I went to Texas opened the the new campus in 77 76 77 academic year if I'm, my memory serves me and I um, having made that wrong turn at the Lincoln Tunnel uh, stayed there till 79 moved to California and was always involved uh, on the side in writing. And so I was the underground gourmet in San Antonio. I was a TV producer. I produced the first food show for the uh, Texas public television 
where, and of course, there was no set because they forgot to bring it to t San Antonio from Austin. So I had to sit there in a blue blazer and make up a recipe and talk to an empty stage with an empty set and somehow pulled it off. And then I decided the best way to do this in the future is to go out to restaurants in the area and talk to the chef, let them do the things. I just ask the questions and I'll be the celebrity. So that's what I did. And, I did. <laughs> and then I moved to, uh, I, I actually got a job at um, a community college where I earned tenure uh, in Orange County, California and lived there for 34 years. And then I finally decided, A, I can't afford it and B, I don't want to die in Orange County looking at, the, at Disneyland. So I had good friends up in Oregon. I'd been up here first time was 84. And I knew I didn't want to go back to the East Coast. And I like rain, which, right. which Oregon used to have before I moved here. I brought the California drought with me, I guess. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got to Oregon. And I've just, uh, you know, I like living in a place where I can get around without a car because given my other peculiarity uh, with uh, loss of visual acuity, I don't drive anymore. Mm -hmm. So you said that you came here in 1984. What was your first impression of the Oregon wine industry? Uh, well, that's a very good story to go with that. Um, I was here working for a radiology firm. One of the things I did in my academic life was do other things all the time. And I was a business consultant, mostly in communications. So I was doing a lot of business writing and other related sales activities for companies. And I had a client called Pine Corporation out of New Rochelle, New York, that was a uh, Fuji film distri distributor. So this is back in the pre, in that cusp of cutting edge technology. And I was brought out here to talk to radiology administrators and I was at the Adventist Hospital. And if you know the Adventist Hospital, you get good food, but you can't buy a drink. So um, I stayed in town and I had Jake's famous crayfish on my bucket list. And I went there a couple of times for cocktails. Uh, I'm an inveterate martini drinker. Uh, I recommend that to all students. Um, <laughs> And um, along the way, I ordered a, you know, salmon on a plank, and I said, send the wine guy over. I may as well have some wine. I'm on an expense account. So guess who shows up? And uh, <laughs> we didn't realize that until I wrote an article for the wine press on him after he retired in 2014. And I realized, my God, this guy actually served me back then. So it's a wonderful small world. Mm -hmm. And the wine world is interesting because a lot of people know each other. And most people here would, I find it very collegial in Oregon. And that's something that uh, contrasts with uh, California. It's a little easier to uh, become involved here. So, when did you start writing about wine, and what is your background um, regarding wine writing? Um, the first article I ever published was a drama review, and the second one was for the New York Times on a restaurant that offered chef de jour. In other words, you auditioned as an amateur, 
and they, uh, the staff voted on your, uh, and ownership uh, voted on uh, your cuisine, and then set up pairings f with wine for dinners, and you're, you sort of had a one-week show, like a repertory theater. And so that was the first piece. And then when I moved to uh, San Antonio, I was listening to what passed for the local news station. I heard about a new magazine and a guy named Randy Benham, God bless him wherever he is. And I called him and he hired me to become the underground gourmet. And I managed to tick off a lot of people because I was a smart New Yorker with nothing to say, but figured I knew better than anyone else. And of course, I really like living in Texas. Don't, you know, we can publish that now. Uh, but I, that's, I was writing a monthly column and then I was doing other pickup work and, and then writing and publishing both academic articles and other things uh, for in-flight magazines and so forth. And then I was in television. So I, it's been in my blood. Mm -hmm. And I started three restaurants with other people. So I've been around it uh, uh, as a, I call it a non-entrepreneur. I'm basically an entrepreneur uh, because m most of them finally went away, but I did have fun doing them. So what is your latest project now? I'm finishing, uh, with the occasion of this interview, uh, a book called Decoding the Grape, Stories from the Oregon Wine Country. And this I conceived while in California. I have been for over 30 years on and off the uh, dining editor uh, for California Home Magazine, Orange County Magazine, and a hotel annual that the same publisher produced. And between 1984 and, the, and to date, I've probably worked with them for about 17 or 18 years in those 30 years. And I'm still the columnist for wine called Decoding the Grape for California Home Magazine, which comes out quarterly. And I like the name, and, it's, and part of it came from uh, the notion of there are all these wine terms out there and people don't know what they mean. So I started out as a kind of glossary and then got more interesting. And I was exposed, as I said, relatively early to Oregon wine in the 80s when, the, when really the vineyards were producing fruit for maybe 10 or 15 years. So it was on the, uh, the new edge. And again, as I say, I'm a sucker for startups. And it paralleled my experience in California because uh, back in the day, when the tax laws were different, uh, writers were often sent all over the place to uh, write about wineries and restaurants. And that happened to me. And um, I had the privilege in the late 80s of uh, having dinner with Bob Mondavi. But that was already after living through the, the evolution of the California wine industry from as early as 1973 up until that time. So I've had a good perspective on stuff. And I said, I ought to put this down on paper or virtual paper. Mm -hmm. since I've been kind of up close and personal, but mostly as a consumer and mostly like everybody else, learning by doing. Mm -hmm. you know? And that 
so it's kind of a, the book is a kind of practicum on my drinking habits. <laughs> Fair enough. So you've done both article writing and you've done longer works. What, in your opinion, is more difficult or challenging for you as a writer? Well, since uh, I can bring out my prop, this is not drumsticks. This is my blind cane. And okay. I am legally blind, but I can see a lot. But mm -hmm. I can't see everything. And I can't read my books. And I can't read my columns. I have to mm -hmm. read them electronically. So if they're online, I can see them, like the stuff I do for Oregon Wine Press. However, uh, the, that, that sight challenge notwithstanding, uh, because I can see what I'm writing more or less, mm -hmm. um, it's really stamina. Because right. you have to sit there and sort of work things out. I'm, I've always been a fluent writer. Um, and I've never had a, a terror of an empty page or a, or a blank screen, unless it's a blue screen on a, on a window system. <laughs> um, but I, when I taught writing, I always started it with the same way. There was um, a book by uh, uh, an English composition primer by a guy named Sheridan Baker. And he had a keyhole model, which I really liked. You sort of started broadly and worked your way to a main point and then you evolved that point through the body of the uh, writing and you came to a point where you restated the main premise and went out uh, leaving them wanting more. So it's mm -hmm. kind of a show business formula. And of course, then I was in television. So I sort of integrated all of these approaches into how I structure narrative mm -hmm. and always want to have, uh, I, I always like to come in from a wing walk, uh, you know, it's, it's like going to the theater. Mm -hmm. uh, a character has to establish this, the mise-en-scene, they have to establish the scene. And it's fun to start writing and seeing where it goes. As Yogi Berra, late and lamented, said, um, according to the, the press, uh, if you don't know where you're going, you may have end up somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And I'm totally convinced in my writing, because I've also written screenplays and do documentary stuff, that um, you have a conception, but be open to the surprise of where your writing takes you. And the Sheridan Baker line was, writing is discovery. You don't know until you do it. Right. So what kind of challenges that does that pose in kind of determining your audience then, if you're embarking on this creative process um, and trying to make it authentic and um, allowing for these new ideas to kind of um, inspire you during the writing process, how do you determine then um, what your audience is and kind of narrow down who you're trying well, to sell your book to? This is a book for the general reader but the, uh, the electronic hocus pocus, I use a software called uh, Zoom Text as like a Zoom lens. And Zoom Text reads websites back to me and it reads my prose. I write in Word like anyone else or I write in uh, a, a mail system like Outlook like anyone else. And to proof it, I just play it back to myself. 
So I'm very accustomed to the sound of my voice as it is read by an electronic genie called Paul. <laughs> and Paul has a very nice voice. And I listen to the music of my own writing. And that gives me a sense of, well, I missed some words. Did I, do I have the order and syntax right? And I tend to be a very fluent getting the first draft down and then I wrestle it to the ground. And uh, while I'm doing that, I'm thinking of the reader. How is this making sense to the reader? Am I, am I scandalizing the reader or am I just uh, leading them along in a way that they can grasp what's going on? Because it's the whole business of uh, writing in general is uh, particularly expository prose is to have a point of view mm -hmm. and then communicate it. And if you're successful, people respond to it. I'm always amazed, um, and this is my ad for the Oregon Wine Press, people quote me. They see mm -hmm. my stuff. Of course, I hang out in bars, so you know, around people who are in the wine business or, or who like wine. So I'll find people who have read my stuff, and I say, okay, I'm reaching them. Um, and it's usually a, an incidental point or an anecdote, which is, I think, what the stories, quote unquote, from the Oregon wine country uh, entail. I am collecting anecdotes and I'm making observations. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm putting down. And I won't say there haven't been books on Oregon wine, but there aren't a lot. Uh, Doc lent me, uh, uh, the Boys Up North, which was an account of the founders' uh, families and the wine efforts that uh, culminated in a book published uh, in 1997, so it's almost 20 years ago. And I looked around the marketplace and said, you know, it's time for somebody to come back and uh, address where this is going now, mm -hmm. that uh, the New York Times and other East Coast newspapers and media have discovered Portland you know, it, it, it's a very um, manageable city. Mm -hmm. And I think that appeals to people in the East. What I like about it, it is very hedonistic. People here like to eat and drink and be merry. Mm -hmm. And uh, it has enough vital, uh, you know, when I write about uh, Oregon, I'm often thinking Portland, but I also very much uh, attuned to the the, the rhythm of the countryside, because that's really what makes this so fascinating to me. I'm a, I'm a suburban kid, and uh, there was a deserted barn across from our first house on Long Island, which was about 15 and a half miles from Times Square. And you realize in five or six decades, the whole complexion of the country has changed and um, we are living through very interesting times. Mm -hmm. And I want to capture that. Then lastly, I'll simply say, the, uh, this is a, a critical moment. This will, we'll pick up this theme a little later. There's a transition going on and we're living through it. And I'm just trying to find the the road signs to see where things are going without being 
um, Cassandra telling what's going to happen when no one listens, or being Jeremiah and telling what's going to happen, and everybody, you know, hides. I think it's more, um, it's a, a marvelous transition, but it, it is fraught with problems and challenges. So we'll see how it, we'll see how the book comes out. <laughs> so how did you go about gathering information for your book? Uh, the first three steps are take a corkscrew, pull the cork, pour some wine, drink the wine. After that, uh, I've been fortunate with some of my friends, including uh, the gentleman here to my left, Doc Wilson, who, who takes pity on this poor drinker who can't get around on his own anymore. <laughs> and so, uh, and Doc's background is such, and I've written about it, he's known as the Kevin Bacon of the Oregon wine business, and so his interview, which you can reference on the Linfield College Oregon Wine History Project website, uh, and no one will come and uh, offer to clean your Venetian blinds, um, he's, he's had a very interesting experience in the industry as it evolved. And so with his connections and my connections as a writer, it, 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 the ultimate acknowledgement of the people in the wine business. Mm -hmm. They open up their uh, bottles and their uh, stories. And it's, it, it's not that it's easy, but I always felt from my, my days in the television news business, if you ask people politely for anything, they'll give it to you. And that's why I find, you know, sort of bullying journalism such a bore. Mm -hmm. Poor manners and also uh, doesn't accomplish anything, makes people shut up. Mm -hmm. And this is a great industry because people who like wine like wine. And they're interested in it. And they're enthusiastic about it. So people will, will tell their stories. Mm -hmm. So did you find that you wanted to focus on um, specific AVAs when you were doing research, or how did you go about representing each region of the Oregon wine industry? Well, I must say and, uh, that I wish I could be in all the AVAs at once, and I've been in about half of them, and I've probably visited over 120 wineries. Mm -hmm. So when I started writing this book, in early 2013, I actually conceived it in 2012, um, during mid-2012, but I found myself uh, counting wineries, and there were like 453, I think, when I started. Mm -hmm. Now there's 647. Yeah. So the whole thing is moving so fast that no matter what I do to uh, kind of quantify my observations, I'm always r trying to catch the train because it's moving. So it's a moving target and it's uh, because it is in motion, uh, I look at what I'm doing as a kind of a, uh, a status report with little history in it rather than a full-blown history or a full or a consumer guide. There are plenty of 
uh, tour maps and other uh, resources available for people visiting Oregon to find out where to go to drink wine. Mm -hmm. So why wine history, um, like why is it important for um, individuals to know about wine history and maybe specifically Oregon wine history? Well, if you think about the history of, of culture in general, wine is a part of it. One of the pieces in the book is about prohibition. And there's a 1996 article on alcohol in the Bible. And there are 228, if I'm not mistaken, references to alcohol, mostly wine, in scripture. Most of it is in the Old Testament. Most of it is positive. The only thing they tell you is uh, don't hire a leader who's a drunk, which may explain why Moses took 40 years to get the Israelites out of the desert. Um, but it's a central part of hospitality, whether you're reading Homer or scripture or, you know, Shakespeare and uh, his contemporaries. Chaucer's father was a vintner. Um, it's been around and it's part of a greater ritual uh, of hospitality and sociability and uh, storytelling. Plus it's good. <laughs> and so having that perspective I think gives one a piece of uh, information or a context for the information of what's going on in the bottle today. Where did this wine come from? What is, what is, what's the etiology of these grapes? Now, you, if you go to UC Davis and you, you're studying enology, you're going to learn a lot about where the grapes come from and how they naturally uh, uh, merged, so to speak. Um, you'll learn about cloning. You'll learn about a lot of uh, technical stuff that doesn't necessarily tell you about history so much as how the knowledge once discovered was applied. And so it, bec it, it comes back to the, the stuff in your glass. It always does. And when you're drinking a good glass of wine, or, and I'm using any wine that pleases you, there's a history behind the grape, there's a history behind the winery, and there's geography behind both, and geology, and you know, climate. So it's in a world where most people, I mean, I remember the joke about the, the woman who wanted to get the bus from LA to Hawaii. You know, uh, we don't teach geography. We certainly don't teach history. And the new, what the, the marketing people I've talked to in the, who are publicists or marketing companies who deal with the wine industry per se say, you know, here we have these millennials who seem to have a lot of disposable income like drinking spirits and craft beers as much as they like drinking wine. But to them it's entertainment, period. And to me it's a little more. Doesn't make me smarter, just means I'm taking a different uh, perspective on it. 
I mean, the pleasure is still in the, in the glass. All right. I am Rachel Woody. I'm here with Ken Friedenreich for the second part of his oral history interview. And Ken, we're going to shift from writing about wine to the wine industry itself. And my first question for you in the second part is, what strikes you as the most interesting facets of Oregon wine? In, the most interesting facet of the wine is that it's, uh, and I'll explain this, is that it is not California wine. And by that I mean it has a lot of suppleness and subtlety that I didn't find in many California wines, which were not to say they were bad. I just think as I've gotten more mature, as my demographic becomes less correct for marketing purposes, my palate has changed. I enjoy the, I like the, the take on Pinot Noir here uh, far better, and it's ide you know, ideal, and I certainly don't need to uh, uh, tout Pinot Noir to people who live in Oregon because it is kind of the, the, the mascot wine. I'm also enjoying the Chardonnays and the other whites that uh, I've encountered that you don't find all over the place, like Müller Thurgau or Grüner Weltliner mm -hmm. or um, even uh, Pinot Blanc. I mean, there are variations of these varietals elsewhere in the world, but I think Oregon has a nice handle on it. And I find the variety and the quality uh, very uh, pleasing and appealing. I hope that answers that. As an author for both California and Oregon wines, what are, in your opinion, the differences and similarities of the industries? Well. The, the, the major difference is I just received the California Wine Institute Harvest Update, which was very interesting reading uh, from the San Francisco-based association. Um, they pulled in 3.8 million tons of wine grapes for 2015. And that's in the teeth of a very, very hot, dry summer and also at an accelerated pace because of, of the heat and everything ripened quickly. So you have a smaller fruit that'll be uh, probably pretty concentrated and make for some interesting wine. Maybe it won't age just quite like the big bumper years that came before uh, 12, 13, and 14. Uh, or, uh, and here's one example of, of how the, the industries differ. I called the Oregon Wine Board and asked uh, by email, or by email said, do you have the latest uh, harvest numbers for Oregon 2015? And the response was, no, we'll probably have them next summer. And then what that does point up the difference, not one is more organized than the other, but what it does suggest is that the or Oregon wine industry is not quite 
as mature in its overall uh, institutional uh, power as compared to California, which is understandable because California was settled first and wine follows the, the covered wagons. Wine migration from, uh, New, from New England or the Middle Atlantic states, particularly New York, uh, followed, followed the, you know, the Oregon Trail. And wine grapes were grown here uh, early on. The first commercial winery was 1859. Um, more or less a few years before, things were uh, already settling in California because of Junipero Serra and the Mission Trail from uh, San Isidro north to San Antonio, which is San Francisco. Um, so there, there, there's more depth and strength of resource in California just by dint of being more established. And certainly it's a much larger wine industry. Uh, nonetheless, what I think gives Oregon an edge for me personally is that the scale of winemaking here is still very hands-on, very human in its scope. There's a connection to the land here, and this is a theme in the book, by the people who work the land as stewards of a natural resource rather than very expensive real estate. And that's a big difference. Uh, and th there's an upward pressure always to be the best, always to have the, the sexiest, most expensive wine on the block. Uh, California has so many wines that are so overpriced for uh, the value they delivered. They're not bad. And there are some great wines in California. And I'll just mention one by name because I think it, they produce wonderful wine is Phelps Insignia. It used to be $80 a bottle, now it's $240 a bottle. It's not for everyone. And not everyone can afford to do that. And that's, you know, retail to the customer, not going to a Las Vegas uh, a mega hotel and spending $1,200 for the same bottle. Uh, there are people who can afford to do that, but that, that's, it's make-believe. And, um, it doesn't make the wine as good as it is accessible to people who would really be able to say, aha, now I know the difference between a great wine and an okay wine. Mm -hmm. there, there's too much competition in Oregon, in California, in New York, in Virginia, in the Texas Hill Country, uh, Washington State, for somebody to produce plonk. You can't do it and stay in business. Um, so there's plenty of good wine and, and the challenge to the consumer is to find it and uh, find what you like mm -hmm. and not listen to wine writers because we're just other people. <laughs> I, that kind of puts you out of a job. No, I haven't had a job for years. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
um, before we move on to the consumer bit, um, I do want to stick with the industries for just a question or two more. And how have you seen both state industries evolve, both Oregon and California? When I first went to California, you could still meet Charlie Wagner of Camus Vineyards, who makes Conundrum, which is very popular, but makes very good uh, uh, Chardonnay. And he was still working his vines. Mike Gergich, God bless him, is 93 years old this year. And he was responsible, we think, for the famous contest winning 1976 uh, mm -hmm. Chateau Montalena Chard in Paris. And he came out of the Mondavi Empire. Uh, in those days, people were accessible. I was just telling Doc, California Home is going to be doing and there's an ad for all of you who want to get it on the newsstands. They're having an equestrian party for some 40-year-old woman who has lots of celebrity friends in Napa, and she's hired tons of chefs and some big winery, and it's, it's a joke. It's just ego. It has nothing to do, uh, but of course, you know, the people who read that magazine, which I, I do like, it's very pretty. Um, enjoy, uh, 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 how shall I say, a level of material security most people don't experience. And for them it's, you know, for them it's, it's just it's one of the couples I interviewed at the Napa Valley Wine Auction back in 84, the year of, the year of Jake's crayfish. The couple were all dressed up and they looked wonderful and I said, what do you get out of this? They said, well, you know, it's really nice. We get away from home and uh, it's just a lot of rich people having fun. And that hasn't changed. And that was for, in the 10 years from my first visit to Napa Valley in 1984, that had accelerated. California is, uh, you know, it's very adventurous and it moves very quickly. Uh, and things that were homey uh, and, and personal quickly became corporate and less personal more flashy, more um, media savvy, and I think they lost something of their um, inspiration in the, in, in the process. Mm -hmm. And here we still have the moment where the founders are with us, and most of them, and it's fortunate that they're here. I mean, uh, one of your supporters, Susan Sokolblosser, wrote a book about letting go of her business. That tells you a totally different attitude, uh, or suggests a very different attitude than what you find in California, where people come into the industry, uh, try it out, and go away. Um, and the, the main families uh, may still be participating, like the Mondavis, but their ownership structure is completely changed. They're owned by somebody else. Um, so one has to dig a little more in California, I think, for the history that's there waiting to be appreciated, even though it has a longer uh, uh, path in, in winemaking to Oregon, but not, not by much. Do you think Oregon will change when the founders pass away? Uh, Will the sun rise tomorrow? Absolutely. Uh, when Kendall Jackson came in here and pay, you know, paid mega bucks 
another guy I, I met when he was around, uh, paid mega bucks for um, um, 1,300 acres and then said, well, we're not going to change anything. That's like saying, um, uh, uh, do you believe the moon is made of uh, green cheese? Of course it's going to change. All that cash is going to add both uh, new resources and new parameters uh, for performance and the little guys get squeezed out and, and or become lost in the clutter of the new, you know, new voices competing for attention. One can only drink so much wine a day and one can only purchase so much wine a day uh, and if you're being, if, if you're being bombarded by um, commercial messages and I don't mean this on, on the radio or on, on, in, on television so much as within the industry at, at restaurants and, and you know package stores you get you, you, you tend to lose some of the focus uh, in, the, in the market even if it's bigger so I think without question what Oregon is facing is a succession challenge that could be met in part by what I call a conservancy notion, which is to say, since it's collegial here as a rule, and since I, I look at the land as a finite resource, what both California and Oregon do not have is a thousand years of winemaking experience and tradition with a certain plot of land, as you would find on the main road in Burgundy, or uh, along the uh, Gironde, or in Tuscany or Piemonte. We simply are too young. And if the succession becomes muddled in other uh, considerations, such as you know somebody who tried the wine industry as a uh, one one of the growers in the, in in Willamette Valley uh, gave me a wonderful quote. He said, you know, in uh, California, it's one rich white guy trying to show off to another old rich white guy, and while it's a little divisive, there's an element of truth in that. And I, I think what we have to have happen is the people who are part of the legacy here because they were founders or their children are now involved um, who were responsible for the legislation that passed in 73 with respect to uh, you know growth in the valley one has to ensure that that institutional blockade, so to speak, remains intact. And as, as time passes, people will forget about it, and new bunches of bankers and lawyers will show up telling you, oh, that's not what they meant. And they'll reinterpret the law, and the next thing you know, you'll have uh, a big box store on every corner, and the traffic to go with it. Um, and pieces will, will, will be just cut away one by one and one day you'll wake up and 
you'll have another Napa Valley, which is not the charming place it used to be. It's still beautiful, it still makes great wine, but it's lost something. And, it, and that connection to the land can, I think, be uh, bankrolled, so to speak, with my little, my little modest proposal, which would be that the, the people who are founders and the people who've come in uh, create their own uh, land trust, like they do on Long Island. And there's an assessment that they're paying in, which will be passed along to the consumer, but there'll be a sinking fund, so to speak. So if, if I own a winery and I have no heirs, and I'm ready to go to Fiji and you know, follow another dream, I'm not just turning the land over to somebody who's gonna turn it into condos. That my colleagues can pick up the property at a fair market price and keep speculation from um, driving everyone out. There's already too much uh, going on. And of course, I can't, you know, I'm not going to stand in front of the railroad and pretend to stop the train from coming. But I would like to see uh, the virtues of the Oregon wine country and wine community applied to making sure that in 50 years it won't look so different from where it is today. Because the best parts of California winemaking as in Washington winemaking, we're all young. All this is in my lifetime, in your lifetime. It's been over 40 years, 45 years. Now the industries go back further, but the reality is we're still uh, newbies. And it would be a shame just because of the notoriety and the, and the profitability, which is, <laughs> is a matter of how you count, count the numbers and what, you know, the old, all the various jokes about the happiest day of your life is the day you buy a winery and the second happiest is the day you sell it. Uh, it's not an easy business and the people who farm the land I think have a better sense of how to keep the land going. And I respect that in the winemakers who have that touch and that feeling because I think it shows up in the glass. That sort of inspired a, a side question in my head is, for the wine industry, is it a farming industry or is it a luxury industry? Well, I'm a peasant, so for me it's farming. Even though I'm a suburban kid and I grew up in Great Neck, New York, I mean, to me it's farming. And it's farming with other resources. I look at it as an industry that adds to the quality of life in the state of Oregon just as it adds to the quality of life in Burgundy, Bordeaux, uh, the Finger Lake District of New York, uh, Walla Walla, and Willamette Valley. It's a resource. Uh, we, you know, we want to protect uh, species of fish. Another natural resource, you know, air is a natural resource. Petroleum is a natural resource. It's true, it's, it's refined, but it's finite. There's only so much land to go around that is productive. We must look at it as uh, farmland that has a, a ancillary and seriously consequential benefits if you follow the steps. 
so that you can retain what made it great to begin with. Great answer. What are some of the untold stories in the wine industry? I'm usually half drunk by the time I hear them. I have to have Doc actually tell me what the stories we heard. <laughs> no, it's, um, it, it, it's, uh, <laughs> I'm thinking, the, the one that always comes to mind is David Edelsheim and his, his garden hose, which uh, entailed the, uh, he started with a, a, a little row of vines next to the house. I don't know how small the, the plot of land was, but he was, well, there's no irrigation, so he started using his garden hose to do it, and then he started planting more, and he had to keep going back to get more garden hose. By the time the first season was over, he had 600 feet of garden hose coming off one faucet to water his vines. And, you know, stuff you don't think about when you say, I want to open a winery. Um, Dick Erath planted uh, what, 29 different varietals, something like that, and back in 68, 69. By the time he got over the ground, there was a frost. Mm -hmm. And he's thinking to himself, oh my God, I put all this money in here, now I'm going to go broke, and I have to go back to California and become an engineer again. And that's another part of this thing that's fun is, uh, uh, you know, Oregon Wine Press, but the name itself is a, is a pun. And if you know the story, of Gutenberg, you know that the blocks of movable type that he perfected in about 1450 uh, that went into to printing the first Bible and then many, many other books uh, was itself a wine press that was used, uh, let me rephrase that, in order to, to make the impression of that on the, those forms of movable type, he used the wine press to print the paper. I have never heard that. And uh, if you go to Ponzi, there's Dick, Dick made a, Dick and Nancy made a screw press like that. It's probably, a, if it's a 30, half a 30 gallon barrel, it's a lot. And it has a, the screw press on it. And that's, what, that's where they made their first wine. And the fact that they have this wonderful facility, which is very sexy and very postmodern and very, you know, uh, I call it uh, post-Frank Lloyd Wright. It's a very beautiful facility. But right there in the lobby is this little stupid bucket with this stupid little screw press on it. And that tells you that they have remembered where they came from. And of course, for him, he came from Walt Disney. Uh, and that's another good succession story. It can be done. Uh, but, uh, the story I tell in the book is about Bob Mondavi, who is obviously the man who uh, made varietals the way we sell and perceive wine in the United States. It's a tremendous boon. And he wanted to make wine that was better than the next guy. And he wanted to make wine that was comparable to Bordeaux, that he felt that the, that Napa Valley at the time had the components to make world-class wine, and he was right. He made a ton of money. I mean, just to UC Davis, between the concert hall and the, uh, uh, the School of Enology, he gave $25 million. He refurbished the Napa Opera House, uh, the theater. He's done tons of charitable work in food and related wine research. And yet the guy couldn't figure out how to let go of his company and give it to his kids. 
and it became a, a bloodletting. And, you know, uh, I guess one can't be successful at everything. And so they, uh, you know, they did a public offering. They were not, they, they, made, they made a public offering in 93 uh, in order to kind of right some of the mistakes they made because they were losing money. So they all got rich. And then they had more money to make mistakes. And finally, uh, they had to sold, sold the whole company to uh, Constellation Brands in 2005. But it was, a, it was pretty nasty stuff. I think that's a great exe uh, exemplum of what not to do. Because what happened along the way, they lost the equity in the brand Mondavi Wine, and they lost their institutional memory. And that's at the bottom of the book, is how to develop your taste memory. And if the wine makers lose their institutional memory, and the best way to find it is through their library selections. That's why I like Irie, because it goes back to a founder and his son. And you know, there's some interesting stuff in that library. Um, so fortunately, the scale here is small enough that people can blow the whistle and say, wait a minute, I think we may be going a little too fast down this, this company path. Let's, let's see if we can, uh, uh, let's see if we can benefit the, the investors that we have and the consumers who support us without denuding the product. Mm -hmm. I think another one of the sort of untold stories or perhaps forgotten about aspect of sort of American wine history, but especially with Oregon, is prohibition. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, don't get me started. Um, as I said earlier, when Camille was talking to me, the people I worked with were usually the, the sons and daughters of bootleggers, or they were the bootleggers. You know, like uh, the Bromfen family, uh, the old man was, was bringing lots of brown whiskey into the United States in the 20s. And uh, prohibition was a very bad thing. The, other, the, other, the only other thing that was worse uh, was trying to cram the uh, victory of the North in the, in the the Great Rebellion of the Civil War down the throats of the, the, the losing South by, uh, by putting the newly freed uh, slaves into local government and creating uh, an enormous uh, resentment that took a very long time to uh, ameliorate, and it's still a problem. Uh, and that was one of those great noble ideals that had very negative consequences. Prohibition was another ideal. And it came out of, uh, uh, there were certainly alcohol abuse is uh, something that uh, tends to uh, cause uh, domestic violence and other things. Um, there was 
it, it wasn't really winemaking that was doing that either. Um, but as, I, as we manifested our destiny, there are a lot of uh, women who had to put up with a lot of drunk cowboys and, and pioneers. But the, the, the residue of that was historically tied to women's suffrage. And so it, it became an issue at the time that women were about to get the vote. Prohibition went into effect the year before women received the right to vote, 1919-1920. On top of that, after the, during World War I, uh, there was a, 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 the beginning of the reaction to all the immigrants who had come from Southern and Eastern Europe. The, uh, the you know, Rus Russian Jews, Ukrainians, uh, Polish Jews, Polish people, Ir the Irish were already here. And, uh, but Italians, uh, Spaniards, uh, people from the Balkans, people who came as because the labor market in the United States uh, demanded more and more people as we went into our great industrial development. And secondly, because they were leaving all this garbage in Europe behind them and they brought their customs and they liked, uh, you know, I remember we had a, a Neapolitan house painter when I was a kid, and Patty would come with a can of paint and a can of red wine. And by the end of the day, you didn't know whether he was high on the wine or on the paint. Uh, but that was, he was a trades guy, that's what he did. And that's how he lived. The reaction of the Native Americans, and I use that as the, 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 the Mayflower class of people, uh, thought, well, we're, we're going to be, uh, inundated by all these uh, more swarthy, uh, musical and expressive people who complain and yell and, you know, have too many babies and here we are, we're living in, you know, our refined uh, neo-Georgian mansion and we don't want, uh, we don't want to sully our, ourselves with such neighbors. And so there was an element of class snobbery, an element of, uh, racial purity, in addition to the fact that the hatchetation, which carried nation, uh, carried out on taverns, all, all dovetails together. And the legacy is we have a polyglot of, uh, of liquor regulations throughout the United States. Uh, you don't know what time you can have a drink in one city, in one place, or if you can have a drink at all, uh, and, and I was talking with the people at the uh, Urban Wine Collective last week, and they said, you know, we're still dealing with the legacy of prohibition with respect to the laws regarding distribution in our wholesale business and everything else. So it's created a great deal of confusion. Again, it was a social experiment. It didn't work. What it mostly did was fund organized crime. And who are the people who were drinking all this bootleg whiskey? Well, they were the, the, the sons and daughters and the people of the uh, established uh, wasp uh, uh, communities. Uh, so it, it created uh, its own backlash. And uh, Herbert Hoover, who was certainly not the most, you wouldn't expect to see him at a uh, Alice Cooper concert, um, Herbert Hoover 
was Secretary of Commerce uh, under Harding and Coolidge before he became president. And well, irrespective of what we think of him, he had the common sense to realize he, he had a good wine cellar, he had to get rid of it when he, as a government official, or, or he sequestered it, I don't know what he did with it, but he didn't have it around. But he did like his afternoon drink. So on the way home from the Commerce Department, he passed the Danish embassy and figured, well, you know, the Danes are a foreign country and they drink, I'll go there. So he'd step on foreign soil, have his drink, and then go home. So people were finding ways to work around the, uh, this social engineering project that didn't work. And uh, another part of the legacy, I think, is uh, the pressure of young people to drink till they're drunk. Uh, again, if it's not a part of a home tradition, it, 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 it sooner or later becomes like the forbidden fruit syndrome. And because you can't have it, you want it more. And I think that's, uh, that's domestic education. It's also the nature of our scattered, modern, postmodern world where the family meal is not a family meal, it's a drive-through uh, or a microwavable thing that people are having on the fly. Um, that goes, uh, you know, in other words, the hospitality you see in food and wine magazines on the Food Network and so on, while it's really appealing, also has an element of desperate artificiality because people really don't live like that anymore. So it's a little bit nostalgic, but mostly it's just not real. And these are some of the things that occurred uh, out as a result of the the, the ban on alcohol, which is a terrible idea. And uh, we're lucky we, we, we got past it, but we're still living with those legacies. And I mean, I, would like, I was lucky. I grew up on a sailboat. And, you know, I learned how to drink a gin and tonic at age six. I mean, it was mostly uh, quinine water and lime, but I developed a taste for that, you know, uh, spiky stuff. And it was, was good gin, too. Uh, but it wasn't like a, it wasn't like God was going to come down and throw me into the pit. It was, hey, it's a hot day, the wind isn't blowing, let's have a drink. So we all did. And uh, maybe not been six, but I mean, we didn't, uh, but I was, I, I was drinking um, cocktails with my parents in my early teens. So I, and I learned to um, A, appreciate it, and B, uh, understood that if I took too much of it, it might not agree with me. So far, it's agreed with me for 50 plus years or 60 years. How would you identify or describe California wine consumers compared to Oregon wine consumers? I think the first thing I would say is, I have two words, screaming eagle. Uh, also the name of the first name of the World War II uh, 101st uh, Bastogne. The Screaming Eagle is, uh, you know, eight or nine hundred dollars a bottle for a Cabernet that is quite nice, but not worth the money. And I think Californians are, uh, are susceptible to uh, excess for status reasons, uh, for competitive reasons, for 
Um, this is redundant, probably. Uh, having the ability to do that is cool. And so there's a lot of label, you know, a lot of brand name dropping. And uh, again, I don't disparage California wine uh, because it's not good. I, I believe some of the best stuff is not promoted enough. Uh, I, I think of the Bennett Valley AVA where Mayakimas is, and there's a nice little uh, winery near there uh, called Gemrose, and the wine is lovely, and it's Grenache, they does Grenache-based wines, and it's uh, very nice, but you won't hear about it because it's not being hyped. The other, the, the, the consumer there is more of a label reader, I mean, like, Looking at your, uh, un looking under your china to see if it's real, looking on your sweater to see who made it, unless you've got the insignia on your shirt, which is advertising someone else's brand, which you paid for, and such. And I think here it's a little uh, less so. And I think people here are, and Oregonians, uh, particularly in the wine industry I talk to, are very proud of being a little ornery about that. They, they, are, they are happy to have learned in California and they acknowledge the debt, but they're happy not to have to do business in California. Your quote earlier, uh, don't listen to the wine writers. Going back to that, while that may be true for people who are already comfortable in wine exploration, what would your advice be for the more novice consumer? Uh, follow, um, I was just telling, talk about a wine blog I read, it's called Wine Folly, and the woman's name is Madeline Puckett, and she's based out of Seattle, and she's got lots of good little information. So I tell people, read, read blogs. Uh, I don't think you get a lot out of individual websites because they're all waving their own flag, uh, and then you'll start to see over and over again, things like uh, state-of-the-art, uh, handcrafted, you'll see one cliche after another, and, uh, and lots of uh, floating images that go by that even if you wanted to buy the wine and you've got a live uh, debit or credit card right there to do it, you have to wade through so much stuff to get a, just to buy something. The, the secret is drink wine, don't be afraid. If you've never heard of something, ask. I mean, I can tell you, Doc did a lot of training at Jake's Crayfish over the year to other servers, so they wouldn't, not so much to, people are afraid to say the wrong thing, but the dumbest question is the question that's never asked because it's silent. So it's always important to get a little bit of information, get a feel, kind of a coming attraction, what might be in the glass. And it's in, you're entitled to not like a wine. Now, uh, maybe it's a little too fruit forward for you. Maybe it's a little too acidic. Uh, uh, maybe you're pairing it with the wrong food and you'll have it again later on. Your body will respond to it differently. So I think the most important thing, and don't listen to wine writers who are hyping something. Listen to wine writers who tell you to enjoy your testing of the wine and tasting the wine on your own. 
uh, sharing it with friends, getting reactions. Uh, well, we, you know, it's a, and it's an ongoing learning experience. I, uh, I, I think it's like, uh, wine knowledge is like a, 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 a huge snowdrift and you approach it to shovel a path with a teaspoon. It's always gonna keep filling in. Uh, the, the more you know, the more you wanna know more. I mean, I find myself every day learning something new about wine. And it's not because I'm a genius, it's because I'm curious. And I, and I think the, reading about wine is good, reading the blog postings is good, but nothing substitutes for popping a good bottle of wine and sharing it with friends. And in fact, I always say wine is the toy you share that boys will share. <laughs> and, um, and make notes because when you get to be old enough, you'll forget what you drank. No, actually, uh, how you organize your cellar and how you organize your tasting is, again, highly subjective. But if you apply a system that makes it easy for you to remember certain things that you like, uh, you know, up to a point you can save the bottles, but that's also uh, tends to become a storage problem. Uh, so, but uh, serious collectors will soak the labels off, put scrapbooks together, write notes, uh, and do things. Most people are buying the wine to drink tonight. And I think it's 92% of all wine purchased at two o'clock in the afternoon is done by eight o'clock in the evening. Uh, so people are buying it to drink now. So enjoy it and make a note of what you like and why you like it. And then you become your own wine editor. What is the most pressing problem for Oregon wine producers and or consumers face now? That's a tough question. I, I do think it has to do with succession and keeping the, the uh, this is for both, both the consumer and the producer, keeping the scale human, keeping the story unconfused uh, by focusing on the wine, coming back to the relationship of the land uh, and I'll give you one good example, which you find uh, it was, uh, and partially pioneered in California, was the farm-to-table movement, which, putting the wine in context with other produce. If I'm saying wine is a food and it's a farm product, or or, or evolved from a farm product, I'm I'm just talking about the same thing with, you know, good berries, good lettuce, good fowl and game and such. These are all part of the landscape um, and it should be integrated. I call it commercial ecology. Hmm. Uh, and uh, by that I mean the ecosystem is very delicate uh, and, and too much money and too many SUVs and too many motels and too many tourists and hot air balloons upsets the ecosystem. Now you can't put up a, a, a wall uh, a thousand feet high and keep people out. So you, you need to make it welcome for them, but make it welcome in a way that keeps it uh, interpersonal as opposed to top-down communication. Uh, 
And I think that's doable. And if, you, if people are paying attention, they'll end up in 50 years with something that will be different, but it won't be so different that people, you know, I like to point out, and I do like the wine, and I do like the, the, the statement it makes, but if you go to uh, chapter 24 on uh, 99E, uh, you, you know, in downtown Dundee, used to be at the gas station there. So they kept the gas station look and feel, which is very witty, but it's a very, it's very postmodern. And for me, it's a bit cold. I like the, yeah. And I like the accent of it among all the other rustic buildings, but a world of that would become pretty dull and sterile. Where do you see the wine industry evolving? Well, the demand for good wine land in Oregon will continue because, relatively speaking, it is a bargain. Uh, you know, I remember people talking about wine acreage for five and six thousand dollars an acre. That's now, uh, was it Pear Mountain? I think I heard about, it's a quarter million an acre for just the dirt. Um, so the land is going to get more costly and more precious. It's going to mean it's going to take more money to start an operation. And uh, while one would think that will keep the wineries uh, relatively small, uh, in order to pay the freight, it's going to require selling more bottles and acquiring more land and more financing and more this and that to a point where uh, Again, you lose some of the soul of the enterprise. So, and that upsets the, the, the commercial ecology that exists today. And I hope that doesn't happen. Uh, and that there's enough foresight, as there seems to be, to, to uh, mitigate the, the downside of being successful and making wine and food in an area that people love to visit and eat and drink, you know. Uh, where, where, was, where were we before there was Portlandia? <laughs> and w will we survive, you know? Uh, uh, I forget the name of the chicken, but uh. you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so I, I think the challenge is to manage the growth, continue to uh, bring in uh, new blood who are enthusiastic about making wine in Oregon uh, and being able to uh, market it. And I'm a firm believer, uh, based on the interviews I've done, I like wineries that are making, you know, 1,800, 2,500, maybe 5,000 cases, not necessarily ones that are making a quarter of a million cases of wine, because it's a whole different business. Uh, as they say in those marketing terms, the metrics are different. I like the, I like the scale of the smaller wineries. They can pay more attention. And uh, if you have something that you run out of, it makes it a little more valuable and makes the experience a little more, I think, enjoyable because it is special. There's a point when you deplete a, a year 
the year is gone. Maybe a collector has a few bottles of a particular vintage, and uh, but those smaller outputs uh, always strike me as having a little more interest and a little more uh, of the personality of the winemaker and the and the growers. So what didn't I cover? What should I have asked that I didn't? Um, well, the one thing I, I, would, I would just add as a comment is uh, it's always nice to don't drink wine out of gimme cups. Buy some wine glasses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's worth the investment, and uh, it's one of the it's one of those things that uh, you didn't ask me about screw top bottles. I like them because I can't see it open. I can do very well with corkscrews for reasons that I guess I'm a, opened enough bottles. But um, I, I think it's a, the, the screw caps make a lot of sense, and again. There's more aluminum than there is cork. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.